Romans chapter 11, verse 13, and I'm going to read to verse 33. You'll find it on page 947 in the church Bibles. Romans 11, beginning at verse 13. Here is God's word. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. While this passage certainly does appear to be inscrutable, but how do we scrut it? How do we comprehend the apparently incomprehensible? Uh, Those of you who are new to College Church or beginning to get to know our community may wonder why we bother. Wouldn't it be easier simply to preach on a nice feel-good verse, John chapter 3 verse 16, ad infinitum forever? Why are we picking this uh, kind of complicated passage? Um, I want to take a moment before we dive into the passage, really no more than a sentence, to explain why we do what we do. So I could tell you, um, you know, simply some stories and make you laugh. Um, Trust me, I can make you laugh, you know, even if you come to the 8 a.m. service. Sometimes it happens. I think it is a precursor to revival, but it does sometimes happen. Um, you know, as you can tell from my accent, I was born in Texas, etc. <laughs> right? So I can do it. Um, 
and, and that's fine. There'll be some of that this morning. This is not now. There'll be nothing interesting for the rest of the sermon, you know. Um, and, and that's good, and it's fine. But my goal is not that. My goal is, as a preacher, for you, this is how I'm trying to serve you. My goal is for you to hear from God. That's what I'm trying to achieve. And I believe that means preaching the Bible as it is. And sometimes, thank you, amen, indeed. And sometimes that means finding out what parts of the Bible mean which are difficult to understand, scrutinizing the inscrutable, as it were, comprehending the apparently incomprehensible. So, then, why this passage? Why, why spend the time on this particular passage? Well, here's why it will pay dividends for us to really get it. And to show you that, I want to introduce you to one of the strangest phenomenons in all of existing reality. You thought the rings of Saturn were strange, mind-blowing. You thought those strange, deep-sea creatures with their odd faces were unusual, I have something even odder. In fact, unless you had come across it, you would have thought that actually it was a mythical beast, like a unicorn. But they existed in Paul's time and they still exist today. That creature? The proud Christian. How can it be? How can it be that someone who has been rescued like a brand from the burning, who's been rescued off a cliff of hell by pure mercy alone, can puff himself up about the length of his prayers? Or, you know, the brilliance of his erudition, you know, how oratorically interesting he is. Or, the magnificence of his generosity. I, I gave so much this year. Aren't I a wonderful Christian? Or the size of the buildings that have been put together. Or how many books uh, you sell. Or how perfect your family is and how well your children are doing compared to the children of other people. But how can it be that someone who is conscious that all comes from God and to God and is nothing but a creation of pure grace, how can such a person at the same time be proud about grace. Surely that is a mythical creature, but alas, no. In fact, churches, and I, and I would say, and I think this is what Paul was saying here, not just individual churches or individual Christians, I think whole nations, whole civilizations have been um, ruined by not being able to scrut this apparent inscrutable, comprehend at least the practical consequences of grace. Well, so without any more introduction, Paul here in this passage is showing us that God's ways are bigger, better, and deeper. Of course, the goal is not simply to make us feel sort of down. No, we're lifting each other up. Some people fall into pride, other people fall into despair, but really healthy spirituality, Christian spirituality, is God-centered and therefore wonderfully freeing and joyful, and it's magnetic, and other people will want it too. But to get to that point, we've got to soak ourselves like a bath, stand under the shower of this bigger, better, and deeper grace of God. So first, bigger. 
Look down with me at verses 13 to 16. As you look down there, you can see that Paul is beginning to prick the pride of the Gentiles. He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Now you must remember that that word Gentiles, for the Jew, the nations, it's almost an offensive term, the goyim, the pagans, the barbarians. So there's Paul, and he's uh, writing to these Roman Christians in the middle of Rome, and they're conscious that they're in the center of the empire. It's the New York of the ancient world. They're right there in Manhattan. They're in Times Square, and they're right in the center of everything. And not only that, but they're worshiping the Lord of all the universe. They're worshiping Caesar's Caesar, the boss, the real Lord of everything. And Paul says to them, now I'm speaking to you, Goyim. Sometimes we need that kind of shaking up, don't we? Sometimes the offensive names can be used by God to show us we're not as big as we think we are. Now, pastors can be the worst at this. I say that as a pastor. It is not a conference that I go to that I am not introduced by some extremely long honorific epithet. Now here comes the Reverend Dr. Joshua W. Moody, M.A. Cantab, Ph.D., fellow of Jonathan Edwards College, Yale University, Freedom of the City of London, and all around general big head. <laughs> you know, give me a break. Uh, one conference I went to, the guy introducing me introduced me as, uh, as Pastor Josh, and then he came up afterwards and apologized because he found out I had a PhD. He was apologizing for not introducing me as Dr. Moody. I said, you know, forget it. Uh, you've called me by the name that is far higher, Pastor she given to that great shepherd of the sheep whom we all serve. It's a name that I, a title that I daily feel utterly unworthy of. I see in the worship folder I'm introduced as senior pastor Josh Moody. Well, I guess I am that, but who cares? You can call me pastor you want. You can call me Josh, that's just fine. It is my name, you know. But here comes Paul, and he says, you know what you really are? All you right there in the center of Rome, you know what you really are? Goyim. Of course, we do have Jews in our congregation who follow the Messiah Jesus. And we should be humble before them, us Goyim. And, of course, we should all be humble before each other because this grace of God is bigger than any of us. So I'm speaking to you Gentiles. What does he say to the Gentiles? He says, you know uh, this incredible grace that you've received. You know why you've received it? So as to make the Jews jealous so that they will come back and receive the grace too. Now, if that won't humble you, what will? The reason why you have received grace 
is so that through you, if you are a real Christian, other people will receive grace as well. And so here's the first secret of not allowing grace to make us too big for our own boots. The purpose of grace is not to save us. The purpose of grace is so that through us, other people might be saved. Now, there are various bits of these verses that are extremely complicated, and I'll happily leave them for the commentaries. Um, life from the dead probably refers to the resurrection to come for those who believe in Jesus. The, uh, the dough and the first fruits probably refers back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But you can explore these things yourself, look them up online, as long as you finding the answer to them doesn't make you a big head. For the grace that God has given you to want to study the Bible is something with a purpose that others might receive grace as well. It's bigger. Second, it's better. Now scan your eye down with me, this long middle section, verses 16 through 24. I'm not going to read it all out again. I just want you to look down. I'm going to refer to it. And here it's saying that the grace is not any bigger, it's better. So you can see here, Paul is imagining an objection to what he's just said. So one of the goyim, the back of the church, wakes up from his slumber because he's just been called, you know, you goyim, he's a little offended. He's like, oh, hold on there. And he kind of puts up, puts up his hand, you know, as Paul's teaching. He says, hold on, Paul. Isn't it the case that we have been grafted in? Mustn't that make us so much more special? Can, can you hear the tone of the voice? Have, have we not been grafted in? Can you see his chest swelling, you know? You see his head getting so big he can hardly get through the door? Why do we have so many different denominations? Of course, there are legitimate differences of opinion among Christians. Of course, if we cannot all agree on all these secondary or tertiary matters, sometimes it's better just to go to a church where you do agree, of course. You know, I grew up in an Anglican church, Church of England. Actually, a little different from the Episcopalian Church in America, FYI. But anyway, the Anglican Church. And um, having grown up in the Anglican Church, I became convinced that I needed to be baptized in my mid-twenties. And then I was suitably dunked, right? Oh, how the Baptists crowed. There goes an Anglican, one of their own, on the ministry track, no less, a young, fiery preacher, and we baptized him. I remember very clearly the day I was baptized. I'd gone on a mission trip to a Muslim country and had witnessed to Iranians with an Iranian secret belief. I've told some of you this story before. There's a great work of God going on among Muslims, especially Iranians. More Muslims are coming to faith today than ever before in the history of our world. Globalization means, yes, that we have Muslims as our neighbors, 
And it means that Muslims are being exposed to the gospel all over the world. They're seeing dreams of Jesus and coming to faith. They're fed up with the religion of the butcher and the sword. And they're embracing the faith of love and grace. How beautiful it was to see those Muslims come and find grace. How beautiful. And then my dear brother, my dear Persian brother, gave me Persian gifts at the end to celebrate. He gave me a little cigarette holder. I can show you. It's in my study if you come and visit me. I've never smoked that cigarette holder, I hasten to add. Though, to be completely honest, I must say that I have, well, it's possible that I have smoked a pipe or a cigar on occasion. I appeal to Spurgeon. (laughs) When he was criticized for smoking cigars, he would go to church in an open carriage smoking his cigar on the excuse that that it was good for his throat. So there you go. At any rate, um, back to the point of the story, as I somehow circle back to the illustration, we were sharing the wonders of grace and then he asked me when I was baptized, I told him my heritage He said nothing but simply looked at me. I remember that look. I came home a week or two later. I was baptized at the local Baptist church. Now, we have both infant Baptists and Baptists here, and actually, I rejoice at that freedom. I really, truly do. It is wonderful to serve together with Presbyterians and Anglicans and Baptists and all you people who haven't figured out what you think about any of that yet as well. I rejoice in that. If you have not been baptized, I urge you to do so. It's a biblical thing. But uh, that also is not the point of this now lengthy illustration. The point is that I was baptized, and I remember it was a wonderful moment, of course, but there were certainly some who, who crowed. I remember one dear Baptist member of the church came up to me and all glow with enthusiasm. He asked me how it was. You know, did you see angels dancing? And I looked at him and I said, it was wet. (laughs) My dear friends, we should not make our legitimate differences of conscience on secondary issues of the Bible become matters of pride and division. You like to raise your hands in worship? Feel free. When I can become a little more extroverted than is the typical Englishman, I might even do it myself at times. Do not judge those who put their hands in their pocket and think they're less spiritual. Do you think that God cares? Does he not look on the heart? You love to hear a beautiful postlude be sent out with glorious music. Do not judge those who want to stay behind and pray and experience community. You like um, the organ. Do not judge those who like an electric guitar. Do not make your preferences your pride.
You see how direct uh, Paul is here, verse 22? Note then the kindness and severity of God. See, we can even do it with our interpretations of this text, couldn't we? Yes, my dear friend, God has given you insight into this text, and that means that you are right about it and everyone else is wrong. Yes, God has given you that kind of insight into church or anything else. Yes, God has included you in grace. And others, yes, have been cut off. But that should not be a matter of pride, but of fear. Note the kindness of God and also his severity, for you must continue in his kindness. If there is an even stranger aspect to this mythical beast, the proud Christian, it is the manifestations of the pride. That person who has received grace says to themselves, well, God has been kind to me, therefore it does not matter what I do. Oh, no. Note the kindness and the severity of God. This is not cheap grace. Others have been cut off from the light. Do you not then think that if you live in deeds of darkness that God might not also cut you off from the light? You say, well, that's a little depressing. No, it's actually encouraging. One of the commentaries on these verses tells how one senior pastor would say to him when someone had hardened their heart against God that we must remember that it's not the end of the story. Some branches were cut off, but then will be grafted back in. The grace has a fuller, final purpose to it. Perhaps there's someone very close to you who you fear has been cut off. The story has not ended yet. Where there is life, there is hope. And even in those deathbed moments, who can tell how confession and grace is ministered between the Creator and His creation in the privacy of that final countdown to meeting Him face to face? Grace is better. It is not a finishing thing. It is a flowing thing. There is a better purpose to bring back those who were cut off and bring them back in. The story is not yet ended. Be humble and be hopeful, for it does not all depend on you. It depends on him whose grace is bigger and better. And then also deeper. Look at verses 25 through to 33. Now have pity on the poor preacher here. There is almost no way to explain these verses without disappointing someone. For as you look down at this last section, you will notice that there is at least one phrase that is almost certainly one of the most disputed phrases in the whole of the Bible. Verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now how do we understand this verse? It seems to me that surprisingly it is to focus on the part not that we know people disagree about, all Israel will be saved. But to focus on the first part of the verse, which is often overlooked in this way. Now, we've been exploring this way through the sermon, but it's now time to make it even more explicit. God has a way 
a way of grace that is intended to make grace not a finishing thing, not a thing that makes you proud about grace, that ridiculous figure of a proud Christian, like a beggar proud that someone gave him a new set of clothes, not a finishing thing, but a flowing thing. This is God's way. His way is for grace to flow, for that flowing of the grace to stir up jealousy in others. They think, I want some of that grace. It's having such a good effect. So the way is grace flowing, then stirring up a desire, a jealous desire to have that grace, and then for that grace to overflow so that others are included as well. This is what is happening with the goyim, the Gentiles, and the Jews. One receives grace, it stirs up jealousy, so that grace then overflows. It is God's way. It's happening still today. The gospel came first in the Middle East, ancient city churches with great Christians. The gospel flowed to Europe, ancient cities with great churches. The gospel flowed to America. It has flowed to Asia, millions of Christians in China. Who would have thought that even a few decades ago? And it is flowing back to Iranians and Muslims being converted today. And so it comes with a warning this way, the kindness and severity of God. We must stay in the kindness of God, for if we were grafted in, we can be cut out, as some of those ancient churches appear, at least for a season, to have been. It is all God's way of grace. Grace is deeper than we often think. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. In other words, by this pattern of grace, stirring up a jealousy to want that grace as well, and then grace overflowing, God's way is making clear that we are all utterly undeserving the grace that we have received and could receive. And that gives him beautiful honor and glory as he has mercy on all who believe. It is his way. Now, I know there are various imponderables in this passage that I will happily let you ponder in your own time. As long as whatever that pondering leads you to, it leads you to where Paul goes in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, it should de-pride the proud Christian. And therefore, elevate him to free, joyful praise. God-centered worship. For grace is not a finishing thing, it is a flowing thing. And God is having grace on you perhaps right now, again, young and old and everything in between so that through you 
he might have grace on others so that through you you could church plant so that through you you could tell your neighbor about Jesus so that through you you could start a Bible study bigger better deeper well I can hardly think of a more relevant word for Wheaton. The great evangelical Jerusalem. The center of publishing and the Ivy League evangelical center. The place of grace. How easy it would be for us to become like that mythical sea creature, the Christian who is proud of grace. You say it is impossible. (laughs) I've seen it too many times. I understand the Bible better than you, and therefore I am better than you. No one will actually come out and say it, but you can tell that's what they're thinking. That person does not understand the heritage of that hymn. They don't even know who wrote it. How could they possibly be a spiritual Christian? Well, they won't come out and say it. But you can tell they're thinking it. Those people who do not understand the intricacies of grace... But we do. We are the people, and the truth shall die with us. How careful must we be to continue in God's kindness? You know, if the devil does not come in one way by shutting out grace and mercy from people, he'll try to come in another way to make us proud of grace and mercy and the solution remember we are goyim 